Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who, just five years into my legal career, found myself questioning, why work so hard to barely be squeezing life in? So that I wouldn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided to redefine success on my terms from the inside out, which is what enabled me to build a profitable legal practice while navigating my way through the challenges of two kids and two bed rests, the 2008 financial crisis, and a battle with breast cancer. What I learned is that you can build a successful legal career without sacrificing your health or personal happiness. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hey there. This is Heather Mulder, host of the Life in Law Podcast. I'm super excited to have you with me today. Yes, I know. I say that every week, and I actually mean it every single week. Today is even more special because I'm bringing on a guest that I've long wanted and was finally able to get. Today, we are interviewing Amy Conway Hatcher, and she is the author of a book that came out pretty recently, I I think within the last six to eight months at least, called Infinitely More. If you do not have it, highly recommend you go get it and read it. It really highlights her struggles within big law. She was an incredibly successful partner in the big law world, And she walked away from it all pretty recently and has since written a book and has some suggestions for how to make big law a better better culture, a better place, and especially better for women. So let me give you a quick bio before we bring her on. Amy Conway Hatcher is a fierce advocate, lawyer, board director, warrior career mom, and former federal prosecutor. After decades of managing 24-7 crises, climbing to the upper echelons of big law, and sacrificing family for career, Amy did the unthinkable. She left her high-paying equity partner job and an unsustainable climb to reclaim her life. Today, a partner in a boutique law firm specializing in complex legal problems, Amy thrives as an advocate, author, speaker, and mom of teens. All proceeds of her book are being donated to organizations that support women and girl leaders of the future. Well, hey there, Amy. How are you? I'm so happy to have you with us today. I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here, Heather. It is so nice to finally see you in person. (laughs) Yes, we have been going back and forth for how long has it been now? Probably close to a year. (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while, but it's funny because I was, um, and we'll, I know we're going to talk about the book and everything, but I was so reticent to get on social media mm. to talk about some of the issues that I was talking about. And you were one of the first people who sort of chimed in um, and became like, you know, a favored go-to of, of someone who just <laughs> sort of got it right. And wasn't afraid to speak about it. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So that is going to lead us into people are like, well, wait, okay, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> um, let's get into a little bit about who you are and how you got here. Like share a little bit of your story. Sure. So, um, so I wrote a book and that's like the end of the chapter of where I'm at now, but let me tell you where it began. So um, my name is Amy Conway Hatcher. I grew up in Connecticut. I went to law school in DC um, I started my career first at DOJ. I did DOJ while I was in law school, and then I had a clerkship, and then I had my dream job uh, a year after I graduated from law school, which was I was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. And so I was uh, incredibly passionate about finding justice for people who 
couldn't use their voice or didn't have a voice or, you know, who were afraid to use their voice. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a lot of uh, cases involving murder and uh, sex offense. I did a lot of kid cases and it was truly um, one of the most incredible jobs I've ever had. Um, About six and a half years later, I decided I need a break from uh, the trauma of hearing about trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had to pay off a lot of law school loans. So I went um, to big law. And for the next 20 plus years, I was in big law handling large corporate investigations and litigation for companies and executives who found themselves in trouble. I made it to the upper equity um, partner echelons, probably like middle of the equity partner echelons, actually, but you know, the top tier of where Uh partners try to get to where the power and money is. And I was a, I was a bulldog. I did it all for so many years. Um, And, you know, during COVID, um, actually right before COVID, my dad got sick and um, it was really, really tough on our family. And it started to expose some cracks in the armor, Um, cracks where um, I realized that I had absolutely left no bandwidth, no margin of error for life to happen. And people started to point out, they had been pointing out for a while, but I don't think I was willing to hear them. People started to really point out, and I was listening uh, to the fact that my life was sort of warped and out of whack. And it still took another year and a really tough shoulder surgery for me to say enough. My kids were very vocal about it at the time. They were, uh, they were 14 and 12 at the time. And they were tired of me being gone and getting the leftovers. Um, mm-hmm. So they were very vocal about how they felt about it. I, I was an incredible job where I saw a lot of action globally, um, international bribery, fraud, uh, you name it, I handled it. And I decided in March of 2021 to walk away. I gave up my seven-figure salary that I'd worked incredibly hard for, and I decided to choose a different path and have a different life and a different kind of balance. That was incredibly difficult. I wasn't really sure exactly how I felt about it at the time, but um, a couple, and I wasn't willing to talk about it. And a couple months in, there was a woman who wrote an article for the American Bar Association Journal, where she said the reason why women don't get ahead after they have kids and don't have upward mobility is because they lose focus Mm -hmm. and they don't work hard enough. They get distracted. And I thought, (laughs) oh, good Lord. Right. Are we really telling people this? And I thought it's such bullshit, but on some level, it also happens to be true that we have to work harder and set the bar really, really high for ourselves to make it. It was the advice I got to work harder and harder and harder. And look, let's be honest, at some point, everybody's going to hit the wall if they work at that pace Uh for too long. And I think I was one of those people. And I just decided with the urging of some friends Um, who said, if not you, then who I just decided to raise my hand and say, you know, look, this is crap. And you want you have all these anonymous surveys of women who say it, I'm going to put my name on it. Um, I'm going to be the story behind the surveys, I'm going to share my story of, you know, how I achieved success, what it took, what the cost was, um, and the trade offs and where I said enough. And I'm going to explain why it is that you have women leaving big law, big jobs, big industry positions because the playing field still isn't equitable and we have to do too much to survive in it, much less thrive. Mm -hmm. Mm. So, so many questions. I want to actually ask a question. I don't know if you've been asked this before, because one of my gut reactions early on, which you don't know this, 
was, okay, yes, there is a there is a women issue in big law. And I actually would say it's not just big law. And I know this because I have non-big law clients. I have big law and non-big law clients who are all dealing with very similar things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I You're think right. it's exacerbated in big law. And um, there is more pressure there because of the way the machine works. But you have these issues everywhere. And it's not necessarily just law either, but we are quite the special folk of people and we do love our adrenaline rush and we and I think that all of that adds to it, right? But what would you say to, well, there is there is an issue in big law and in law firms in general that doesn't just impact women. It impacts us all that is unhealthy and toxic and and unsustainable. Is this really just a female issue or is it an overriding other issue plus a female issue, I guess, because that's how I see it. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. I think that there is an underlying, it's hard for everyone, right? I mean, it's impossible for everyone. It's really hard. You got to balance a lot. I think for women, it's harder on steroids. Hmm. And so my feeling is not that it's not hard for everyone, but it's not equally hard for everyone. And People don't see it. They don't want to, or if they see it, they don't want to talk about it. I mean, mm-hmm. we lie about it. We actually affirmatively lie about it. And, and myself included, take actions that perpetuate the discrepancies. And that's where I feel like we need to get more honest. I do think the legal system needs to change because I just think there's only so many hours in a day and there's only so much you're going to squeeze from people before <laughs> they they can't do it anymore. And there are plenty of articles out there and studies about the stress, the depression, the mental health issues, the you know, um, alcoholism, drug abuse, suicide rates of lawyers. We're, we're, you yeah. know, people think we're sort of a miserable lot. And you know, <laughs> there's there's some there's some truth, truth to that. I mean, you know, ask lawyers if they're truly happy and joyful in their life. I mean, <laughs> but we see a lot of stuff, right? It is a great profession. It's a great job. I think the law firm world is going to have to change, or I think they're going to continue to lose people, but I think they're going to continue to lose women at much higher rates. And they're never going to fix the diversity and equity problem if they don't wake up and see that their business model just simply doesn't support that ideal. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's important then to start like peeling back the layers of, you know, what's wrong so on the one hand, I guess let's let's go through just the general toxicity, and then we're going to get into the female, the added burden on women, right? Because I don't think I don't think you can address one without the other, honestly. I, I, I think just, you're right. I don't think Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. um, and I feel like if we make it clear but there's a bigger issue that impacts everybody that we can start pulling more people in, hopefully, that aren't women to help us because this helps everybody and and show them that some of the, hopefully, the fixes for the female issues too do then impact them in a beneficial way. Because let's be honest, everybody's selfish to some extent. <laughs> they want to see what's in it for me. Why do I care? Right? So, um I mean, we all know that certain law firms can be very toxic, but let's just go into some of what you had to deal with and and as an example, and you know, this ridiculous like the expectations and the give your life over and you, you know, 
you have numerous examples throughout your book, which by the way, people is wonderful and I'll let you promo it whenever you want, as often as you want. Um, and I think the proceeds don't even go to you directly, do they? No, they don't. They go to nonprofits that um, yeah. champion women and girl leadership and also you know, help families in crisis. Wonderful. Okay. So definitely um, it's called Infinitely More and, and, and I'll have a link in the show notes for those of you that want to go grab it. If you don't have it yet, I highly recommend it. So tell me about, I remember there's this one story, it's the the bitch story <laughs> um, <laughs> that just uh, felt so, oh, that's just so typical, <laughs> right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that and anything else that comes to mind that's just so so typical of the law firm culture in general. But, and, and look, one thing I don't want to say at first is I was in three firms and I have a lot of girlfriends in a lot of different firms. So this is not a dig on any particular firm. I tell my experience from my perspective, right? From what I experienced. Right. But it is not unique to this firm and it's not unique to the leaders in this firm. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of toxicity. And also I would say sort of ostrich head in the sand about the toxicity uh, throughout the big law profession. And I would say even in some other law firms. So, mm -hmm. you know, small and medium sized firms sort of depends on where you are. So it, it's not a knock on anyone in particular, but it, it, but, you know, some of the stories in the book are intended to show sort of the absurdity of it all. Um, <laughs> you know, the bitch story was a story that happened later in my career when I was a, an accomplished equity partner at seven figures. You would think that I would have some respect, right? And, and I think what my, my, my emotions at the time were, you know, was I in an industry that even cared because all of these institutions and organizations will say that we're family, right? And when you're part of a partnership, you're family and you should give up your kid's baseball game or volleyball game because, you know, you're supporting your partners and your family. And at the end of the day, it's really business is business. Um, and that's the way they, they treat it. So mm -hmm. I had a, I was dealing with a really difficult matter, a highly sensitive matter I was bringing in a lot of money for the firm. And it was also for a client they cared about. And there were some problems that were happening that I needed to have the firm support and I needed to have the male leader support in championing the team, protecting the team, sort of helping me to, you know, put a wall around, uh, you know, the work that we were doing because people in my world, you know, when you're in crisis situations, people get a little defensive and people get uh -huh. a little worried about what's going to happen to them and who's going to get blamed. And so you need to make sure that the lawyers who are trying to give independent evaluations and advice based on the facts that they find, which sometimes are not people's best moments, right? That that is not shaded unnecessarily because people are worried about their own skins, right? So uh -huh. um, I talked to a partner who was involved. There's sort of a lot of like back and forth behind the scenes stuff at the firm that wasn't helpful. And I wanted to make sure that I had the support and backing of lawyers who were important in the firm, who are in leadership positions, and frankly, who could really support and protect the team. And the, you know, the reaction was, look, you're the client's bitch and you sort of have to suck it up and do whatever you can do to protect the team. We're, we're glad we're not in your shoes because it would <laughs> sure suck to be in your shoes, right? Um, 
but do your best and uh, best of luck to you. And then, you know, sort of disappeared. And I thought to myself, oh my God, like I've been at it for this long, doing high-end work, saving people from, you know, ugly lawsuits, jail, government investigations. And as it turns out, what I am in the eyes of my partners, that I'm the client's bitch, not even, you know, a client, right? It's, this is my, these are my partners, the, you know, the guys who are in the bunker with me. And uh, that was, it's pretty hard to, pretty hard to accept, but it was certainly eye-opening. And I shared the story with my kids and my daughter, Mm -hmm. Olivia, who's 14 at the time, who is sort of, you know, pushing on and goading and telling her that she needed to be proud of standing up for herself and, you know, making sure that, she's heard and that her voice is heard and she's not disrespected. Um, she looked at me and she was like, I cannot believe you took that mom. <laughs> oh, that's hard to hear. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was a sort of one of those weird moments. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things just in that story. Number one, I do think it shows the toxicity of lawyers and law firms in general, because we always tend to put clients first at all costs. And I think it's totally backwards. I Yes, we're here to serve our clients, but they should not be what comes number one. It should be the people in the firm, the, you know, actually making sure they're protected and doing what's right legally, ethically, and as a human, right? And to protect one another first and foremost, so that you can then do good work for your clients, but you don't do it at the expense of you. And that's something that's gotten really messed up within the, the law firm, in the minds of a lot of lawyers, I find. Yes? Yeah. Look, I, I think that it's two things. One, it's, yes, you have this issue with the clients being the be all and end all. And I think at the end of the day, you know, client relationships are incredibly important, especially when you're talking about some of the corporate relationships where there's mm-hmm. so many tentacles in the firm, like all of that stuff has to get managed well. And I'm not naive about that. But I think everybody's got to be smart in the way they manage those relationships because it's not necessarily, you know, one or two people are not necessarily representative of the organization. So sometimes you need independent people around to just settle everyone down and stay focused on what the objectives are, what's best for the organization, right? Um, Because at the end of the day, the work that you do needs to be right. And if it's not right, it's not good for anyone. Right. So, so there's that aspect of it. But I also think that we have to own some accountability within the firms of, you know, saying what we mean and doing what we say. And there yeah. are a lot of things that we say and we have flags over that we don't really mean and that we don't really stand for. So if you say that your partners are like family, well, then treat them that way. Um, and I think there's sort of a lack of courage, right? In, in that, um, having the courage to stand up for your convictions and, and do what you think is best for everyone and, and, and right, and not be sort of, uh, the one who's not going to put their neck out there. Cause you don't want to, you don't want to wind up on the wrong team. Right. <laughs> and it's interesting because it raises this, I think people, including most lawyers, have a perception of lawyers that is not true. They think of lawyers as these fighters, as these, you know, get up and always fight 
for whatever is right um, or their side. And yeah, we will do that to a point for our clients and we will fight like crazy. But when it comes to ourselves or somebody else that we see isn't being treated well that's within the firm, we often say nothing and allow ourselves to just be treated. And we complain quietly behind the scenes, <laughs> like a lot, but we don't do anything about it. We, we don't stand up and actually speak up because what a lot of people, especially non-lawyers, don't, I think, understand until I, when I have conversations with people, they're always surprised to hear this, is we are incredibly worried about what other people think of us. And it it's drives like, us <laughs> in a way that is really not healthy. It's like we're all back in high school. I mean, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, like when, when my daughter graduated middle school, I was like, oh, my God, I think I just graduated middle school again. <laughs> and I didn't yeah. like it the first time. Nope. Um, I, do, I do think that there's there are a lot of sensitive egos, right, that are out there. But I think that, you know, there are also lawyers who um, who go too far. And not necessarily ethically, but they're sort of willing to push the boundaries. Um, there's a lot of silent bystander problems within law firms where, you know, people say stupid things and and then nobody speaks up. The, the stuff that's going to get the firm sued, generally speaking, I feel like those issues sort of get addressed. They have to be pretty bad. Yeah. But some of the micro issues, um, I don't think that we've learned how to deal with them. And again, we're so busy billing hours and maximizing the number of hours that we can build that there's literally no time to even pay attention internally to culture. So it, it's sort of this vicious cycle in a way of, um, and, and it really depends on who you're with, who your leadership's with, you know, who the leadership team is at the time and what people are focused on. I think. I think that people's experiences can vary so much depending on where they're at. And I think some of that is tied to the courage that the people around them have on mm. some of these issues. And it's, again, not just with clients, but I think it's with each other. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And um, okay, so that's, that's kind of that first layer, the culture, generally mm -hmm. speaking. But then we get down to a deeper layer and... We're talking women's issues specifically and what women have to deal with. Talk a little bit about why it's so much harder for women specifically within big law. So I have different periods of time that I sort of pay attention to. And I would say in the beginning of my big law career, I, I didn't really see it because I went in, I went in as a prosecutor who was tough as nails, who could compete with the best of them. And at that point, I'd probably had more trial experience under my belt than a lot of my, my firm um, colleagues, some of whom were very senior to me, um, just because I literally had gotten out of an office that is, does federal work, but also is the equivalent of a DA's office in DC. Um, and so I had a lot of trial experience. So I went in not as a wallflower, not as a junior associate um, who needed to cut my teeth anew. I had some things to learn about the business of law and certainly how you handle corporate matters, but, um, but I came in at, a, at another level and I was used to competing with men um, in the courtroom, in the office. Um, you know, I worked with really tough detectives, so none of that really phased me when I came in. 
And I, I had no intention of wanting to forever work for the big dogs. I wanted to compete with them. So that was my mindset. I went in (laughs) thinking women could do anything just like my mother taught me. And it might be hard, but it's okay. I've done that before. That's not, that's not that bad. I think where I started to see differences and really sort of notice it, and it pissed me off, but again, I didn't do anything about it other than work harder, was when I started to um, hit the equity partner ranks. And it was right around the same time that I became a mom. So I was, you know, I became a mom a little bit later in life, which was in some ways great because I was in the sort of you can't mess with me stage because they had promoted me. And they knew what my value was. So I wasn't a young associate, you know, experiencing motherhood Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out work-life balance. I was already an established professional professional who had made a partnership and they knew my value and they wanted to keep me. So I felt like I had a little bit more room, but they also knew that I wasn't going to take my foot off the gas Mm -hmm. um, because they knew how I was. They knew how I handled things. And, And really what I started, when I started to notice the real inequities was when I realized pay gap applied to me. And that really pissed me off. Um, it's, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about it, where, you know, I was out with a group of guys, um, that I worked with at the U S attorney's office. And, you know, it wasn't often that we were in town together and everybody started, you know, having a couple of cocktails and the guys started to talk money. And I was absolutely horrified to learn that even though some of the revenue dollars were the same, that I was paid less than half, um, what some of them were making. And, and it was just stunning to me. I rectified that situation. I did talk to firm leadership. You know, they let me know that was, you know, the way it was supposed to be. And I would, everything would even out by the time I was 50, which was, you know, nine years to a decade later. It was sort of crazy. (laughs) But I, but I ended up leaving the firm and literally more than doubled my salary in a day. You know, one afternoon I'm walking out from one firm the next day, I have a completely different paycheck and it made a difference. But I think that's where I started to notice. But again, I don't think it was going to phase me. I think I was in the mode of, just working harder. And I will tell you, Heather, I don't think it was until I wrote the book that a lot of the story sort of came together. I'd had it in my head for so long. I had whispered in the hallways, just like everybody else did. But I just thought talking about the inequities or acknowledging some of the inequities wasn't necessarily going to help us get ahead. We needed to get more women at the table. We need to get more women in the rooms that mattered. Mm. And once you got there, right, you could start to fix things. So I advocated some along the way. But I would say I didn't really put a lot of the pieces together until later about how it impacted me and really reflected on what it took to make it through some of those tough periods where it was very visible and it was really tough. And it got tougher as you got more senior, I felt. I felt like people sort of took the the gloves off and any niceties they had around diversity and you really saw true colors. Yeah, I would say that's probably true in a a lot of law firms in general. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel like, okay, well, now you're one of us, so you can handle everything. So when I was reading your book, I look back and I was thinking through like my progression, right? And I think that sometimes it's not intended, yet it, the impact is still there because of how things work. So for example, and I think you and I had a LinkedIn like conversation over this at one point <clears throat> where I figured out that I was like, seriously not making enough money based on what I was bringing in to the firm. And this was towards the very end when I knew I was going to be leaving. I knew I didn't want to burn bridges. So I made the choice, can't go back and change it now. I don't know that I would, to not do anything about it. 
because I knew I was about to be out at the door and I didn't want to burn bridges with my firm, right? To be paid a whole lot more and a year later leave. <laughs> Say bye. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving law forever. And so, but what it what I realized though, part of it was my fault because I was in one of those firms where they would pay you as little as they could get, you know, as much as they could get had to to keep you and as low as they possibly could get away with. And squeaky wheels did get paid better in a big way. As a woman, I always felt like I shouldn't do that because then I'll be seen as this whiny, complaining, you know, because we get a different, people view us differently when we do that than the guys. And so I don't know that it was so overt as, you know, oh, we're paying women less, but I I certainly saw that. And in talking to others since then, I've seen that. And you have to speak up to get paid your worth, that or move, which I also think is crazy. Within the legal environment, you can hop firms and all of a sudden get paid a whole lot more money. And your firm will do the same, by the way, for somebody else, but not necessarily give somebody who's been there forever the money without them complaining, bitching, moaning, groaning, you know? And even then they may not. So it's, it's just weird to me, but that's a whole other issue. But, you know, so I looked back and I'm like, oh, all these little things kind of added up where some of it was on me, some of it was on the culture, some of it was on other people, some of it was definitively intended, and some of it was not. But it still adds up in a way where I think it holds women back in ways where men just aren't subject to the same type of issues or criticisms or rules or whatever. Yeah. And and look, I think. I, I think that women are not raised to talk about money in ways that men are. I think that women are much more reticent to negotiate than men are. Um, and we need to get over that. I mean, we need to teach our daughters differently and make sure that schools are teaching young women about, you know, negotiating their worth and understanding their worth, because I think it really, you know, it matters. Your ability to advocate for yourself matters. And I wasn't always good at it. Um, there are many instances where I failed. And I talk about that in the book. I'm, I'm much more comfortable advocating for somebody else than myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, we own our success. And there are a lot of bullish things that my male colleagues would do to get paid their worth that I didn't feel comfortable doing. And guess what? I'd lose. So, you know, the guy whose ego is so fragile that everybody's sort of worried that he's going to work out the door, but we know she'll never leave because the money's good enough for her. We'll pay him even more obscenely and stroke his ego and give him leadership positions that he frankly doesn't qualify for because he's not a good leader and not a good manager and not a good budget, you know, guy, but we'll give that to him to make him feel better and soothe, soothe his ego. And she'll, you know, stick around and do the deputy work and, and do all the you know, shit work behind them and make them look good. And, and there are too many stories where that happens. I mean, I've heard, it's uh-huh. not just law. You're right. I mean, I've heard from so many women on the heels of this book because what the book does is it's not, my story isn't extraordinary. It's only extraordinary in the fact that it's, that it's ordinary. Right. And that so right. many women have experiences. When I hear from people all the time is like, look, when I read the pages of your story, first of all, I was like, Oh my God, when is she going to stop? <laughs> <laughs> and then People start to reflect on their own experiences and all the crazy things they've done to make it all work, you know, at the expense of themselves and without really the recognition from leaders, what it takes for women to show up in those higher echelons. So I think there's, it it, it is like 
paper cuts, right? Like it's this micro stuff that happens over time that at some point ends up helping you slam yourself into a, a wall because you realize that every glass ceiling has another glass ceiling and every you know, power room actually has multiple ante rooms. And the only place you're getting to is the ante room, no matter how hard you work. You know, there's the favorite team, which includes no or very few women. And the women that they allow in are the ones that maybe are willing to play ball or aren't strong enough to speak out yet. Uh-huh. I think that, you know, there's a reality to that and, and a level of frustration that winds up translating more to women than men. Uh Um, and you know, I see too many instances where the path for men is different. Now I'm not saying that people shouldn't take advantage of opportunities and of course they should, but there has to be an acknowledgement that sometimes the opportunities come a little bit easier, a little faster, you know, without friction and that the way people are treated are slightly different. So I've heard your story a million times of women sort of staying there and like feeling like loyalty is, you know. Yeah. is paramount above all else. And I've certainly fallen victim to that myself. And I'm not saying don't be loyal, but I am saying that recognize organizations and leaders are only so loyal to you. And so you really, as a lawyer, you know, or as a professional, um, particularly if you're a woman, I think you need to be even more in tuned and committed to making sure that you're looking out for yourself. Because at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road and people's money is at stake Mm -hmm. and power is at stake, you are responsible for you. And very few people are going to be willing to expend their invest their power and money um, in you. And frankly, sometimes have to give it up in order for you to succeed. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. And I would say, so we've got to be better about speaking up on behalf of ourselves and advocating for ourselves and not always passing it off to, well, this always happens, or this is just the way it is, or I, you know. And I would say that that whole loyalty, I would, if if I were look, if I were still there, I would reframe that as you can still be loyal to the firm, and advocate on behalf of yourself. There is nothing in disagreement with the loyalty you have, you know, for the firm by advocating I, for yourself. It, I agree. In fact, non-loyal. I think you're you're more loyal if you do right. that because you recognize that the firm has invested money in you, that it is not easy to replace your talent. That can't, that doesn't just happen overnight. So when, when people don't advocate for themselves and they get frustrated and they leave, you know, on some level, one could argue that by not giving it a shot, you may or may not get what you want, but by not being candid and open about what your expectations are and sort of where you think you fall into the mix you're you're not being as loyal to the firm as you could be that said you have to expect that you know look they're always looking to make these new investments with splashy big names and titles right. and everything like that and so it may be that they're not willing to invest in you now and then you have to have enough respect for yourself and courage to know that you know if you're underpaid that you can that you can rectify that situation, but you're going to have to go somewhere else. And you can do that yep. without burning bridges. And, and a lot of people do it all the time. I think guys are more willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think <laughs> that the days of, you know, the IBM organizations and the old school law firms where people stay forever, sort of a thing of the past. I mean, people are much more mobile now. And I think we have to, you know, again, just sort of look out for ourselves the way, just like anybody else would. And I have more respect for people who do I'm not saying I don't respect people who 
you know, but I have the utmost respect for people who figure it out and take control of their careers and do what helps them achieve their objectives in a respectful way. Yeah, no, totally doable. And I, to your point, if, if loyalty is a key attribute or value of yours, you are at least giving them the opportunity by saying something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not, you're totally depriving and they may not know, they don't know what you don't say. Now there is another side to that leaders. Some know <laughs> this, this says something. I mean, maybe you don't take the time, but you know, step back and look, it's pretty obvious when you look at the numbers and you see the people and what they're getting paid and what they bring in and what is attributed to them. It is not that hard to figure out, okay, who's underpaid here and who's overpaid. And and you can rectify that, you know? <laughs> you can. I mean, look, I heard from a woman a couple of weeks ago who, and literally I didn't think this happened anymore. You know, and there are a lot of things that I am surprised, but not surprised by. But in any event, she, she contacted me and she let me know that she asked for a raise. And uh, the response to her was that her male colleague had a family and his <gasps> wife stayed at home. No. And this is in a law firm world, right? I mean, like, come on, like, have a, like you could get sued for wow. saying stuff like that, but it still happens. And, you know, she was sort of in the mode of, well, you know, what do I do? Well, what you do is if that's how they're, you know, deciding pay, you need to leave. Yeah. You need to find a place that's going to pay you based on the work that you deliver. Because every year that somebody else gets more money because they have a wife who stays home or pick your reason, right? you're going to be further and further behind and you're never going to make it up. And the money translates to opportunity within the firm, your stature, your ability to pay for all the help that you need at home in order to make your life work, especially if you have kids. Um, it's your retirement. So maybe how long you have to stay in a pressure uh-huh. job where, you know, I mean, all of these things add up. And the one thing that I will say is with, with the space that I was in, when I found out that I was underpaid, I just had my second child at that point, or maybe it was about a year old. I realized I was never going to make up the difference from the past, but I have to carry that baggage with me knowing that, you know, my male peers were all that much further ahead. I am so glad I made that change because had I waited to what the law firm leader said I should wait for before everything evened out, I would just be starting to make money now, the, the real money, right? Right. And 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 I wouldn't have any choice about stepping out because I wouldn't be able to afford it. So I just think that we have to look at our life as, you know, in our careers as sort of the, you know, in some ways, the game that it is and our careers in the context of what is the strategy for the objectives that we want to achieve. And I think we have to be pretty bullish about making sure that we're incrementally over time right? Moving in the direction of achieving those goals and not waiting for somebody else to pat us on the head and say, it's okay, it's your time. Because it's not going to happen. No, it's not. I mean, there's, there's two things that stick out to me that I learned in coach training when I was decided, okay, I want to, I want to go out and be a coach. I don't want to practice law anymore. That were this like huge aha moment for me for why I had seen things happening the way they always happened in in the law firm world. And one of them was everybody sees everything from their own perception, right? Mm -hmm. And we all have a very different perception. Two people can be, you know, party to the same thing happening around them and they they come away with different things that they even noticed. They – some of them have different conclusions about what happened. I mean, because – 
all of your experiences and everything you've ever done, they color how you see it. And so do so does, you know, who you are, what you want, and your own selfishness. And that's the other thing. Everyone is selfish. Like even very giving people, at the end of the day, everybody has selfishness within them. It's a human characteristic. We have to meet our own needs. Your your mind knows that. And so you cannot completely separate that. And so when you understand those things, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are be bad, always bad and evil and doing it out of you know, like for horrible reasons, but it it is what it is and it impacts you. <laughs> and so it's up to you to understand that and then advocate on behalf of yourself. Yeah. And look, I mean, like we deal with this every day with our clients, right? We deal with our clients who are human, who make mistakes, who have good days and bad days, some of whom shine and some of them aren't so shiny, right? Um, we we are hired to solve problems that people have, that companies have every day. And so what, what would be hard for me is I would go out and I would have conversations with CEOs or board members and give them bad news you know, about what their problem was. But all, I, we'd also talk about how to fix it. And some of this was you know, that people were incentivized in ways that didn't lead to a positive culture, that right. people were incentivized in ways that made them cheat, that made them lie, that made them do things that put the company at risk and, and put shareholder value at risk. And it created massive problems and it was a massive reputational issue for everybody who was in charge. So the question is, how do you rectify not only the problem, but the things that cause the problem? And sometimes their leadership decisions about how they pay or don't pay people. It, it all feeds into each other about how people behave. So I would go back into the law firm world. And for some reason, we didn't think the same rules applied to us. <laughs> the same stuff happens within our organization. Um, that pay and how you, you know, how you promote people influences how people behave and that affects the culture, which was exactly the same. So I, you know, at one point I got so frustrated with this because like, it was just, you know, like a yin and a yang, it was like this discrepancy that I couldn't resolve. And I'm sitting here having one kind of conversation with the CEO of a, you know, publicly traded company, massive company that, you know, sits on like their billions of dollars in revenue. And then I'm having a conversation with leadership in my firm. And, and there was just a total disconnect in, in the realities of those situations. Yet the, the principles are sort of the same about, you know, how people behave and looking at the choices that people make and why they make them. And so I took a leadership course and, um, and it was at Cornell university. It was sort of an online thing. And I remember talking to one of the professors one day and he was like, you're in big law, right? And he said, well, none of this stuff applies to big law because you guys don't think that the rules apply to you and the leadership principles that you advise your clients on, you don't live by in big law. And I thought to myself, wow. So where do you think law sits? Like the law profession sits in terms of advancements on leadership. And the view was that we're sort of in the 18th century. So the question was, if you care about this stuff, why do you stay? And I'm not saying that people shouldn't stay. I'm just saying that I think we need to sort of wake up a little bit and realize that what we tell our clients sometimes is really good advice. Mm-hmm. And we should apply it in-house too, because you'll keep people longer and people will feel better about the sacrifices that they have to make and the jobs that they do. Um, in order to serve clients and make everybody a lot of money, right? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, law firms are massive money-making machines and people do make a lot of money. So you want people to feel good 
about having to show up and, and, and give what you demand of them. I mm-hmm. still think the model needs to shift and change somewhat because again, with a 24 hour limit on the day, yep. the last time I checked, it's just not healthy for people to be measured solely by the hours that they work as opposed to the quality of the work that they deliver. Absolutely. Okay. That kind of naturally leads us into like, how can we make changes? But before we do that, I Mm -hmm. want to ask about the role women play in exacerbating the issues. Because I do think we play a unique role in that, right? Every single law firm I've ever been a member of, everyone I go to speak to, every client I have who's a member of a medium to large size firm, big law or not, has a women's initiative, group, something, right? And yet very little changes. Let's speak to that a little bit. You're right. Um, you know, this is one of the areas where I think I needed to eat a little bit of crow and, and, and also sort of understand what my role was. Like I sort of wanted to understand, you know, if I was somebody who achieved, people would say a position of power. I don't know that I really ever had a seat at the real table, like the real super secret, you know, behind the curtain table. But I, you know, I got far enough. So why is it that I couldn't change? Because I thought, you know, for sure the rules didn't apply to me and I could, I could make change if I stayed long enough. Um, so why did I fail? Well, I, as I sort of looked at the diversity programs, I mean, in the beginning, I thought, you know, I was never going to be one who took advantage of the diversity. I wanted my work to stand for itself. And I wanted to be able to compete on whatever terms the field was willing to give me and leaders were willing to, you know, to give me. But I would say over time, I realized that diversity programs were helpful to me because sometimes it was the only way I could get in front of clients who mattered. And being at those tables and seeing how these pitches worked and what the business side looked like was incredibly important. But there did get to a point where I felt like we were all lying to each other in those pitch rooms um, and in the diversity meetings, because we would sit there and cheer on these programs and talk about how great they were in the firm, caring about women being in leadership positions and advancing women. And um, then we'd sort of all laugh about it when we left, because we all knew it was crap. And there were times where, you know, I was sitting in these pitch meetings with guys who were the worst on diversity, mm. sharing credit, right? Like who would take credit from, you know, the, their secondhand person who was a woman any day of the week, if it helped them get a, you know, stay a little bit ahead, or if their numbers were, you know, were not as high that year. I mean, you know, they would be magnanimous in years that maybe it was flush, but in years where things got tight, they were more than willing to, you know, cut their female colleagues at the Achilles heel. I feel like there were, it was too often that we played both sides too where we didn't say, I'm willing to go talk about the diversity program if we're honest about where it is and what you're going to do to make it better. And then hold you to that and look at the numbers. I'm not willing to talk about your diversity program and wave the flag if you want me to say this and this isn't real. And and that is something that I think women need to change. I also think women need to change how they compete with each other head to head. In, um, in the law firm world, but I would say anywhere. I, I think there are too often that somebody will decide we get a chair and the women will duke it out over that chair come hell or high water and they can be pretty nasty about it. And you know, at the end of the day, we should be creating alliances and um, asking ourselves how we get more chairs so that more women you know, are in the rooms 
that matter. I think too often we we don't out of fear or wanting to be part of the team, part of the pack, right? Be mm-hmm. accepted. There's too often where we abdicate responsibility for what we need to do. Yeah, I think it's it's there's so much that goes into this. So there are the women, and we all know them or have seen them within our careers that felt like they had to climb a higher ladder, go you know go at it harder, be better. And they're a little resentful for it. And so then they almost take it out on those below them. Well, I had to do X, Y, and Z. You're going to have to too. And then also they worked so hard to get there, they don't ever want to give it up. So they feel like they're in competition with all the other women. And so they just make it harder for them, right? Yeah, I think there's also a sense of um, not, not wanting to make it harder for other people, but there is a point where you're just exhausted. Yeah. Where, you know, you reach a point, you're, you literally, again, have no margin of error in your life. You're on no sleep. Your kids don't think you're doing a good job and, <laughs> and are upset when you're not around for their things. You're not doing that well. You're not taking your care of your family well. You're not taking care of yourself at all. And then you're having to cater to everyone's needs that come in rapid fire tidal waves by email 24 seven every day of the year. I think there is a certain point of exhaustion. So when somebody would come to me and talk about how hard it is, I would acknowledge how hard it is. I would say that it's doable, but this is kind of thing that I had to do. I, I wouldn't begrudge anybody for making, you know, a different choice, but I, there are times where I didn't know how to make it better. For others, I wouldn't make it harder, but I didn't right. know how to make it better because I couldn't make it better for myself. Well, and that's the other avenue. And I think most of us actually fall into this box where we're not necessarily even being honest with ourselves about how much we've had to give up or are willing to give up. And hmm, we, when we can't be honest with ourselves, then we're not going to be honest with anybody else. So how is this so-called diversity program going to even work when we're not even acknowledging what we've even had to do because we won't speak it out loud? Thinking of a particular chapter in your book called The Ruse. And it, it was like, oh, God, this was – I remember this so well, being a young attorney, listening to these women who they'd put up there at these conferences, you know, the infirm conferences where they talked to all the women – and this is how you do it. And number one, they bought into the lie of you can do it all, have it all, which is totally impossible, FYI. And I would argue you don't want it all. Nobody wants it all. Like figure out what you actually want and go after that. Don't like buy into that lie. So that's the first problem they all have. And then secondly, then you get two groups of people. You get the first group that is the most non-aware they are so unself-aware, they have no clue how horrible they sound. Like they're telling you these things where it's just terrifying as a young associate thinking, oh my God, you think this is okay? Like how is this okay? Then you have the other group of people who try to say, no, 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 it's really not that bad. Um, Yeah, it's hard, but it's not that bad. And they're lying to themselves. (laughs) So you're talking about the – infirm conference that I described oh, yeah. in the beginning of the ruse where there yeah. is the guys brought in two women clients who were lovely people, but uh, very quite intense, very successful, incredibly <laughs> successful. And last minute I was asked to moderate the discussion and everybody packed into a room. It was, you know, one of those 
events that people were really excited about because, you know, you had two powerful women clients coming in and, and chatting. And one of them talked about how she had made a decision that she was not going to have kids in order to be able to succeed. And her husband basically took care of everything for her. He was, he was basically her manager behind the scenes and housewife and et cetera, et cetera. So that didn't really sound very good, but you know, and, and was sort of horrifying to women in the room. <laughs> but then the other person started to talk about, no, 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 you can have kids. And then gave an example of how, you know, she would work all night at the firm go home at three o'clock in the morning to make brownies by hand (laughs) for right from scratch for her kid's school thing, and then go back to work. And it it was one of those moments where you're looking around the room, the guys were like, so proud of themselves for making this event happen. And the women in the room, a lot, some of the men were, were horrified by what was being described because it, all of it was so superhuman Mm -hmm. and so unattractive to people who sort of having some quality of life or maybe the reality of having other responsibilities in their life. And I sort of sat there not really knowing what to do, a little stunned by the whole thing. (laughs) And all I could think to myself was that I wouldn't do the brownies from scratch. I'd go by and catch a couple hours of sleep before I came back into the office. But it wasn't like I was any different than them um, in a way. And so that was sort of this reality check. You're right, where you lie to yourself because you you start to achieve such incredible things. I remember the days where I would wake up early and I would, I mean, like early meaning like two, three o'clock in the morning and I would do emails and then I would get up and make the kids breakfast. I would see them before they left, especially if I wasn't traveling, you know, especially if I wasn't traveling overseas, which I did a lot. And then I start my conference calls in the car and I'd work through lunch so I could maybe catch them on the way home um, before I had to start my evening conference calls. And there were days where you were exhausted getting through it. But when you looked at what you accomplished in a day, it was so heady, right? It was, it was like being a gladiator in a way, but there's only so long that lasts and Uh you miss out on so much. And I think we do sort of talk ourselves and fool ourselves into this belief that um, if you can just do it a little bit longer, when you get there, you'll change it for everybody else. And the bottom line is, is that you won't get there because you won't last that long. I don't think there is a there, right? I I I think you're right. Yeah. There is no there. I even think, I mean, I look back at the people who were so-called successful, be it male or female. And some of this is just a warped view of what success means. I don't think success is about making a ton of money, but having zero life and getting divorced three times and having no relationship with your children. And, and so it goes deeper than that. It, there's a moment where you need to step back. We all, when we started practicing, we had this vision of how our lives are going to look and why we're doing it. And usually it includes some semblance of a life too, right? So that we can provide for our families, so that we can do all these other things. And you you got to learn to check in with yourself along the way regularly and say, okay, am I really living that vision that I really wanted? Or because it, it's easy to just kind of slowly but surely keep going like the, the frog in the boiling pot of water where you stick them in and it's not, you know, it's cool. And then slowly but surely they, you're dying. <laughs> right. Well, and that's why, you know, another chapter is called the frog in the pot, because I do yeah. think that we start to lose, a, we start to day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, lose more of ourselves and become more like yeah. that other person that we didn't want to be like. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. And, and this is part of the, 
you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how to solve all the world's problems. I certainly don't know how to solve, you know, uh, the diversity problem. There is no easy checklist. I think every organization is organic. It's going to have to figure out its own way. But I do think some of these problems are solvable until they're solvable on more of the macro level. I think at the micro level, we have to own our own journeys, our own pathways, our own careers. Um, we need coaches like you. We need people who are willing, you know, who say, make us, you know, sort of check ourselves at the door. Mm-hmm. And we need to build in the time where, where we're looking at our plans and saying, where are we vis-a-vis our plans and our strategies? And are we where we want to be? And if not, how do we move in that direction? There's certainly a number of people who have left the law firm world and gone into the corporate world. And some have found happiness and some haven't. But I think the worst place for all of us, whether we're in corporate or whether we're in a law firm, is to succumb to the belief that we're trapped. Mm. Because I don't think we are. I think a lot of, you know, everybody's from a different financial system has different need, uh, different financial situation and has different needs. But I do think we have ultimately more control than we realize. And one of the great thing for women is that there are a lot of women-owned businesses out there. There are a lot of women who are getting really creative about creating a career path that allows them to live the life they want to live, as opposed to the other way around, where life comes second. And I, I just think we have to reset our priorities, to your point, redefine success and and see the absurdity of what we're doing but i think we also have to really from at the end of the day which was you know the hardest thing to do for me was sort of look in the mirror and ask yourself do you like what you see mm. and are you saying what you mean and are you doing what you say and are you living a life that you know and, and advocating for the things that you believe in and if you're not you have to ask yourself what are you giving up and is what you're giving up and trading worth, you know, what you're getting back? And mm-hmm. if the answer is no, I think we got to, you know, make some choices or speak differently or act differently than we're doing now, because there is no safe zone of staying silent and sort of accepting what an uneven system has to give. It's it's we see it as safe and it's so crazy that we see it that way because it's the most unsafe thing you can do for yourself it's not what you would tell a client right it's not what you would tell your client to do you know yeah keep paying bribes and just be quiet right like you wouldn't say that you wouldn't say keep the fraud going because uncovering the fraud is really uncomfortable <laughs> or don't kick that guy out who's a butt grabber right? Because that'd be a really hard conversation. You go have the hard conversations. So what are we so afraid of? I mean, I think that's the other thing too. We should not be afraid to talk about these issues. They are hard issues, but they're not the boogeyman. They're not the guy in the closet, right? I mean, at the end of the day, these are probably really smart people. These are problems that we can solve. And I think as long as we start being, you know, being in a space where we, we have the courage to talk about them without retribution, I think that's when we'll start to solve the problems, because I think a lot of this is about awareness, honesty, mm-hmm. action, and understanding the deal that you're making. Because at the end of the day, um, I think you have to ask yourself, is the deal that you're making worthy of you? And, mm. and leaders have to ask themselves that question too, because if it's not, they're striking a deal that significantly undervalues someone or holds them back and they really want to keep them, 
well, then they don't get to complain when she leaves. Right. Okay. So you, obviously it all starts within and ourselves. Mm -hmm. And before I let you go though, is there anything else that you feel like, you know, what else can we be doing? That's the obvious starting point, but what else? You know, I, I, my, my hope is that the book that I wrote and the advocacy that I'm doing is an invitation to start a conversation that doesn't stop. And I will tell you that I hear from more women sometimes than I can answer. Um, I feel like on some level that's getting traction. Everybody wants to know what to do. And I think what we have to start thinking about is start small, right? We're not going to yeah. band together and solve the world's problems. I think we have to start small within our jobs, within our the environments that we work on, within our teams being team oriented, but making sure that we don't lose sight of ourselves uh-huh. and start to take ownership of what we can control. Because I think that's where we start to make progress is that everybody is sort of accountable to themselves. And then some of the people around them that they you know care about and they, they want to elevate. I, I think we start to gain some traction. I do think that there's more to be done within organizations um, that, you know, that can be driven from top down and bottom up. That's a, probably a whole other podcast, right, right? but I, but I really do think that it starts with, you know, each individual thinking about their trade-offs and, and where they're at and where they're going to go. And I, the only, you know, the only thing I could say about the book infinitely more, which was unexpected to me is that it's starting conversations among pockets of women who are giving the book to other pockets of women, just talking about it either way. But it's spreading a conversation that clearly needs to be spread, (laughs) much to my surprise. (laughs) So not the quiet book in the corner (laughs) that was sort of cathartic to write and a good learning experience, but but it's, it's starting conversations that really need to happen. Wonderful. So I do agree with you. Uh, before we leave, that I think people sometimes think, oh, this is such a big issue. It, I can't do anything about it. It does start with each individual. and it, Because if you're not willing to do for yourself and then make that extra step to do for some team member or somebody else you see impacted, nothing will ever change. It has to start there. Cultural change really, I think, does start with that. And maybe you don't change the culture where you are because it's too huge, but it means, okay, I'm now willing to speak up and I'm now advocating for myself and sticking up for myself. It opens your eyes to new possibilities and opportunities out there. You will see things in a different light when you're looking elsewhere and making decisions, which will take you somewhere hopefully better. And every single decision can only get better from there, the more wide open you are and the more willing you are to advocate for yourself. Yeah. And Heather, one other thing that I would say that had a massive impact on me is I had to look my kids in the face Mm -hmm. and tell them what I believe in and whether I was acting according to what I believed in and and whether or not what I was doing was going to be um, putting them in a better space for the future. So I do think too, if you're not willing to do it for yourself, look at your kids, look at your kids in the face, especially your daughters and ask yourself if you're going to tell her, whether you're a man or a woman, right? Are you going to tell her 
that you took bold steps to make her professional world better, that you took bold steps to make her life better um, so that she could achieve all the dreams that you've told her about that she was deserving of from the day she was born. And when you start having that conversation with yourself, much less your child, it again shifts your perspective and it gives you a reason to have some of these harder conversations that maybe we sort of got used to, got accustomed to not having. Mm-hmm. And even for those of you like me who don't have daughters, I think it's still important to have this world that you envision that you would have wanted for yourself, for your sons too, because Absolutely. that makes for a much healthier environment, much healthier relationships, happier marriages, happier, it's like everything for all of them. And so I think it's just as important for them. I agree. I have a son too. So I, I completely, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And look, he's more attuned to some of these, you know, to some of these issues and has pointed out for me where guys might be uncomfortable talking about equality issues. So talk to your kids. They have incredible, enlightening, um, amazing thoughts that if you had if you had conversations about them on this topic, you might be surprised at what they've noticed and what they might say. Yeah. And they're at an age where they're much more willing to just tell you and speak to it and and not be influenced by the so-called culture and society. It's an awareness that that you need. Well, <laughs> that and they'll tell you when really you're wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> they will. They're very honest. Yes, they are. <laughs> Yes, they are. They're profiled in the book. And the fun thing is, is that for the audio book, which we're going to start soon, um, they're going to speak their own parts. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, there'll be a little bit of calling out, you know, (laughs) tough mom. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So where can people find you? So I'm um, on LinkedIn regularly. So I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. You can also find me at amyconway-hatcher.com, which is my website. And that includes a page that profiles all the organizations that are receiving money from the, from the book and are getting donations as a result of this project. Okay, wonderful. And I will have links to all of those places in the show notes. Thank you so much for this conversation, Amy. Thanks, Heather. It was an absolute pleasure. Are you tired of barely squeezing life in thinking, shouldn't there be more to life than this? Do you want to get to the next level, but without losing yourself in the process? Are you ready to start thinking and doing differently so that you can stop doing the same things over and over and over, hoping for a different result? If any of this speaks to you and you're ready to do something about it starting now, book a call with me to find out how I can help. Go to lifeandlawpodcast.com forward slash free call.